Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Real Estate Investing Mastery. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, we've got a follow-up interview with Jason Hartman. Our last interview with him was so good that uh, we wanted to bring him back on again and talk about some really, really important topics related to real estate investors, um, namely looking at risk and looking at how does risk affect your portfolio, affect your investments, affect your future, because it's really important that you manage risk well. And one of the things I love about what Jason does um, he takes a value approach to investing. You know, it's not a uh, get rich quick. It's not a uh, um, like a day trading. If you're familiar with stocks and stuff like that, it's you know, it's it's maybe more of the Warren Buffett way of getting wealthy over the long haul with with conservative value plays, and uh, that really is the only uh, that is the best way to long term wealth. And there's no other tool better than real estate. There's no better asset class than real estate for that kind of stuff. But um, so let me just tell you real fast here. If you go to realestateinvestingmastery.com and you'll find a previous episode that we did with Jason, make sure you go check that out because we had some really valuable free bonuses in there. One of them was the uh, Jason's 10 commandments to real estate investing. And also we had a, um, a PDF report in there about the, what Jason teaches in regards to refi till you die, and which is a controversial topic. But if you look at the numbers, you might think, ah, oh, this is interesting. And if you want to know more about it, you can go to uh, Jason's website at jasonhartman.com or you can look him up in iTunes. Uh, he has a great podcast. You should check it out. But uh, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com, uh, download our Fast Cash Survival Kit. It's free. And as we always say, if you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. But check it out. It's a free video series on how Alex and I use virtual assistants in our business, how we do all of our marketing, how we find deals, how we negotiate deals, and how we um, wholesale properties in multiple different markets all across the U.S. It's really cool. Thousands and thousands of people have downloaded it, learned a lot. It's the same kind of stuff you'd pay $1,000 for. It's really cool. Um, leave us a review in iTunes. I am looking here at iTunes, and it just updated we got some really good reviews from people. I just wanted to read them off. Uh, this is from Indie Homes. It just basically says, uh, great podcast. Uh, Joe always gives so much real information and education on these podcasts. Thanks. Robbie Cox says, as a beginning real estate investor, I am learning so much from Joe and Alex. I've paid lots of money to other investors for the knowledge and info Joe and Alex are giving away for free. This is a must-listen podcast for real estate investors, new and experienced. And I'll read uh, one more here from... the. JRB 66212. These podcasts are great. I've listened to at least 10 of them, and each of them is some valuable information that I can use. Thanks, Joe and Alex. And there's a bunch of them on here. But I want to let you know, please leave us a review in iTunes. Um, if you go back about six or seven episodes, there's a video I did there on how you can get some really cool free bonuses if you leave us a review. Now, we're going to send you the bonus whether you leave us a positive or a negative review. I'm not going to say that we'll only give you these free books if you leave a positive review, but if you leave a review, let us know, and we'll be glad to send you some free bonuses that I think you're going to get a lot out of it. One of them is a book that I wrote called Flipping Houses While on Vacation. Another one is a book we wrote called um, Being Brilliant at the Basics, 
And it's about that book is about marketing, automation, and delegation, and how you can automate your business to run uh, without you, for the most part. And also um, some videos I did on an all-day Saturday workshop on how to flip lease options. I think you're going to get a lot of really good stuff. And you get all that for free if you just leave us a review in iTunes and send an email to my assistant about your review, and we'll send that stuff. Okay? So let's just jump right into Jason. Um, Jason, how are you doing, my man? Hey, good, Joe. How are you? I'm, really good. I'm reading your reviews. They're awesome. Good job. Well. <laughs> Uh, those of you listening know that uh, Jason has another podcast, and I was giving him a hard time on our last episode. You were, and I deserved it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I was giving him a hard time because we have more reviews than he does. Although he has, he's been doing this. I mean, he, we, I think you mentioned before you have like fifteen hundred podcast episodes. Uh, well, yeah, not on the Creating Wealth Show, but uh, that one's Total. got four hundred and twenty-eight as of this uh, time that we're talking. Yeah. But uh, but with all the other shows, yes. And um, I'm terrible, man. I'm too shy. I don't ask for reviews. I got to do what you do. You've <laughs> you've taught me some good stuff here, so I appreciate that. Well, Thank you. Yeah. So I should have kept my mouth shut because now, Jason, <laughs> now now because Jason has like ten times the listeners that we do. And uh, he's going to get online and, and uh, ask his quadrillion millions of people to, that are listening to leave him reviews, and then he's going to have double anybody else. But anyway. I have, I have like six or seven listeners. That's all. <laughs> Jason, uh, what are some of the other podcasts you listen to? You've been doing podcasts forever. You must have some favorite podcasts you listen to, right? Yeah. You know, I switch around, um, but, but I've been podcasting for seven years. I started the Creating Wealth Show back in 2007. And, you know, that's, that's been great. I've learned a lot doing the podcast. One of the things I love about it is I get to talk to such interesting people all day long. And, um, and so that's, that's really good. But, uh, gosh, favorite other podcast, you know, I've, um, been sort of behind on my podcast. I, I look at all the, I've got like 62 of them on my, uh, yeah. on my list here in my phone. And, uh, and I've been listening to a lot of audio books lately. I'm always listening to some audio and, um, you know, I, I just kind of surf around and switch around. I, I tell you one I really do like uh, that is a, um, and I have no, I don't know these guys or anything. Uh, I just like their podcast because I'm really into future, uh, you know, uh, future thinking and you know upcoming technologies and mm-hmm. things like that. And um, this one called FW Thinking, FW meaning forward thinking. Huh is really great. I really like that one. And, uh, and so I'd listen to that. Of course, your podcast is excellent. And, um, I, I try to listen to some of my own, although <laughs> there's no way I can listen to all yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, uh, just too much, uh, but, but it's interesting going back because I'm like, did I really say that? Yeah, I guess I did. Mm. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I listen to Stansberry a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, with a grain of salt, <laughs> I'll, mm-hmm. say, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, I listen to, uh, Oh gosh, I'm just looking there. I don't know. You know, I'm sort of all over the board right now. If you asked me that a couple of years ago, I would have been a little more committed probably. Yeah. You know, I'm looking through my list here too, and it's hard for me to, a lot of them are real estate related. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, well, you know, geez, I got a lot of them here that I listen to. Oh, you know what? One of my favorite ones, Dan Carlin, Hardcore History. Have you ever heard of him? I have. I used to listen to that one. That is a very good podcast. I agree. Yeah, he talks about history in a real dramatic. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. only he can do. Right. And uh, I used to listen to that a lot. Um, but anyway, there's I, a I've lot. got be, before we move into actual real estate investing here. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
I do want to recommend a couple good audiobooks, though. Good. Because I've been really into audiobooks, and um, I love this one, and I have not had him on my show yet, but Michio Kaku, uh, which is kind of a hard name to pronounce. I think that's probably Japanese. Uh, but he's got a fantastic book called The Future of the Mind. Oh. And that is really good. And then um, I've had uh, John Malden on my show twice, and he's got a book called Code Red, which is pretty good. What are they about? Uh, well, Code Red is about economics and, you know, the end of the world, doom and gloom type stuff, but it's still interesting. Uh, although I don't really believe in that. See, where I part with a lot of these guys, and I've interviewed most of them on my show, uh, is that you know, a lot of these economists, Joe, and I, I think you might agree with me on this, a lot of them are just doing the math, and there's way more to the story than math. And, 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 and when I say that, here's what I mean. They look at the U.S. and they think, oh, my gosh, you know, we're $17 trillion in debt. We've got all these unfunded mandates, you know, over the next 10, 20 years, you know, between – and the numbers there are staggering. They're between 16 and $220 trillion, meaning all of this stuff – that the government has to pay for all of the promises that they've made over the next 10 to 20 years, whether it be in the form of Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, uh, other entitlement programs. It suddenly seems like we've got this whole generation of young people that are mysteriously disabled nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and what I mean when I say that is they're collecting disability benefits from the government yeah. because unemployment has run out. And so all of these government promises that the government simply cannot afford to keep. And all of these economists out there and a lot of people in the survival and the prepper community, and I, I have a show on that too. You called do, the really? Holistic, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's called, the, I got a show on everything, right? It's called the Holistic Survival Show. And uh, so, you know, I've interviewed a good over 200 of those people. And I, I got to tell you, I just, I don't think they're right. And, and I think they've got interesting stuff to say. And it is reasonable to be prepared at some reasonable level. You know, it only costs about two to three hundred dollars per person in your household to have reasonable, responsible preparations. Okay, but I, I would not spend my life doing it like some of these people do. Um, and and you know, their argument is that the dollar is going to collapse the United States economy is going to collapse, the global economy is going to collapse. And that's what the Code Red book is about by John Malden. I know I'm on a bit of a tangent here. And, you know, I can see where they're coming from. And I I used to really agree with him. But the problem is, Joe, is that they're just doing the math. And I mean that, yes, if you look at the numbers, they're bleak. I agree. But the reality is the U.S. is in a very, very enviable position when you look around the world. I mean, it's kind of like being the, the uh, you know, the least uh, ugly girl at the ugly girl dance, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the other countries are in much worse positions than the United States. I mean, think about what we've got going for us here. And this is a good reason. And I know you've got listeners from all over the world. I've got listeners from 164 countries. So all over the world too. And, um, you know, we've got the reserve currency of the world. There's a lot of rumbling that that will not continue. But basically every international transaction has to be reduced to dollars before the trade is made. Okay. And there are countries trying to trade outside of the dollar. I get it. I know that. Um, 
but that's not going to go away. And why isn't it going to go away? It's not going to go away easily, at least, because we have the biggest military the human race has ever known by a huge margin. Yeah. And we're not going to give up the reserve currency status. Why would we? There's no way we're going to let that go easily. And a lot of the conspiracy theorists think that, hey, that's why you know, we pick on countries and invade them. We find other reasons we say to do it. Uh, but, um, and I'm not saying anything, this is right or fair or moral. I, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it is. Mm. That's all. Okay. You know, um, I was thinking while you were talking, I picked up a book one time. I was listening to uh, – I'm, I'm generally more conservative, but I like to listen to NPR a lot Yeah, um, just because I can't yeah, stand NPR, commercials. NPR is – I agree. Yeah, that's why I listen to podcasts because I can't stand commercials. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was thinking of this book. They interviewed this one guy one time, and he wrote a book called Why Nations Fail. Mm-hmm. And it was phenomenal. He wrote it in 2012. Right. And uh, he talks in there about the origins of – Power, prosperity, and prop and poverty. Mm-hmm. Why nations fail? And it was a fascinating interview. I only got through halfway the book, and I I don't know. I just got busy. I never finished it, but I've always been wanting to go back. And it's fascinating. You hear him talk about how America, the reasons why for of, of American success, um, and how if we the, the um, I'm doing a horrible job explaining what he talked about, but because we. At the time, when before America was just kind of quote unquote discovered, um, a lot of the Europeans were going to South America because of gold and um, because of well, I'm, I'm not even going to attempt it because I'm going to butcher it. Mm-hmm. But uh, kind of America was was the leftovers, quote unquote. Right. Well, well, yeah, but but you know, it it doesn't matter that much. Like if you get that story exactly right, because the basic story is. That, you know, we're in debt up to our eyeballs, the country spends too much, blah, blah, blah. It's like I have heard that argument about a zillion times. Right. And I used to really agree with it. And I do agree with it from a math point of view. But my point is that it's not just about math. You know, there's a lot more to it. I mean, America is still the most innovative country on earth. You know, I mean, look at all the creations. You know, I don't see, you know, and for better or worse, say whatever you want about it, but I don't see Facebook coming out of Japan, okay? I don't see uh, Twitter coming out of China, okay? You know, all of this stuff seems to start here. Yes, uh, a lot of the Asian countries do a great job of scaling it up and manufacturing it and knocking it off. I get it. And there are great things about those countries, but the original idea is usually American, okay? Yeah. You know, for most things. And, and look at all the, the incredible technology we've got going on now, whether it be in the field of genetic engineering, biotechnology, nanotechnology, energy. I mean, you know, the, the electric car, I mean, they, there is a whole new breakthrough in battery technology. And I'm not a believer in electric cars, okay? Uh, but that I may have to change my mind because they've got some pretty big new breakthroughs. And and in the world of energy, Lockheed just announced last week that they discovered a, a they made a major breakthrough in fusion technology, meaning not splitting the atom, but fusing it together, which is clean, safe, abundant, cheap, and and produces zero waste. Interesting. No nuclear waste, you know? Interesting. And could, and could fit on the back of a pickup truck. A reactor, a fusion reactor. 
So, uh, you know, and they say that's 10 years away from reality. I'll tell you one more book that I really, really like. Um, yeah. The Pumpkin Plan. The we don't know that plan. one. Oh, it's yeah. a fantastic book. Kind of similar along the lines of The One Thing. I've heard of that. Yeah. But what really it good about? books. about focusing your business. Um, mm-hmm. And a giant pumpkin farmer. These guys are just obsessed with raising huge vegetables. And mm-hmm. uh, they, they spend thousands of dollars for one little seed. And when they get that seed, they focus all their energy on planting it and, and cultivating it and nurturing it. When that pumpkin starts getting its branches and growing all of its pumpkins, they look for the best pumpkin in the vine, the one that has uh-huh. the most promise. And then they cut everything else off uh-huh. and focus all of their energy on that one giant pumpkin. And it's a book kind of a, taking the farm analogy into business and, um, and, and focusing on your sweet spot, focusing on what you're really good at. And it, it, I found it really was applicable to me in my real estate investing business. Um, similar along the lines of The One Thing by Gary Keller. That about, was great. Yeah. yeah. Focusing on that, what's the one thing you need to do in your business right now to make your life easier and, and, and more uh, abundant. But um, a lot of different topics, a lot of good books out there yeah. we can talk about all day. About, um, and I totally butchered that the Why Nations Fail and, and why you should maybe read that book. Yeah, well, you know, you're, you're, you can't think on that fly with everything. Well, while you're managing the audio equipment and making sure the sound is good. <laughs> but it's a good book. I read you know, the, yeah. the, I only read half of it. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. let's but, t- but I heard I heard good things about the pumpkin book, too. Yeah, the guy, wrote, read it. the guy also wrote a book called uh, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, I believe. And I've not read hmm. that. Um, but I think it's about creating, writing up a business plan on toilet paper and being successful with it or right. something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, Jason, was evaluating risk. Obviously, risk is an important part of this business, but why? Why is risk so important to consider in real estate investing today? Well, you know, there are so many people out there, Joe, who call themselves real estate investors, and I'm sure you've come across this many times in your career, uh, and they're really just gamblers. They're really just speculators, you know. They're not investing. To to me, for something to qualify as an investment, it has to create income or cash flow, okay? Otherwise, it's just a speculation. So, if someone's investing in, well, I shouldn't say investing, if they're speculating and gambling in gold, non-dividend paying stocks, silver, platinum, palladium, uh, California real estate that doesn't cash flow, okay, which virtually nothing in California cash flows, or I'll pick on Miami, same story pretty much. Uh, you know, the northeastern states, same story. Uh, you know, uh, all, all over Europe, I couldn't find anything that made sense either when I looked over there. And um, uh, so, so that is not investing. To be an investment, the critical factor is income. Investments produce income. Yeah. And, you know, Warren Buffett would agree with me on that, even though I don't agree with Warren Buffett on, you know, the stock market being good. Okay. Um, but, but it's got to produce income. And so that's the first thing. It, that frustrates me. I mean, have you, you, you've seen that, right? Where a lot of people are out there saying, oh, I'm a real estate investor and, you know, nothing I have produces cash flow or income, right? Well, I saw that especially in 2005, 2006, yep. when, um, you know, everybody was thinking that well, to make money, you buy a property and do a cash out refi on it, you know? Yeah. Um, but they, and then they, what the problem was, was they were counting on appreciation 
and forgetting right. the fundamentals, forgetting the importance of cash flow. And I couldn't agree more. You should be able to in invest in something without anything great happening. You should be able to make money. Okay. Appreciation is the icing on the cake. If it comes great, hey, we'll enjoy it as much as the next person. But, you know, we're not going to enter into an investment based on appreciation. And so I think that's a critical thing. Mm -hmm. So so the next layer of this is something it took me 19 years to discover, Joe. And it just kind of happened by accident. I was buying my first out-of-state property. You know, I had always been a California speculator. I lived in California virtually all my life. And I bought properties and they appreciated and I made money and I thought I was brilliant, but really I was just lucky, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes I wasn't so lucky. And sometimes I had to hold the property long enough to ultimately be lucky, which is kind of a weird thing. And I say that about entrepreneurs, you know. The whole the whole point of, um, you know, business is stay in business long enough for something good to happen. And, you know, I'd say that applies with real estate investing, too, because if you if you can't hold on to the real estate, in other words, if you're forced to sell it because you didn't properly manage income and cash flow, that's a bad thing. You don't want to be put into that position. And so how do we avoid that? Well, we buy things that that are sensible from day one. Yep. You know, we're, we don't speculate, okay? So that's the first thing. Now, you're a wholesaler. So, you know, you're, you're not in, in the business where you have to deal with that. You're, a you're doing a transactional nature when you wholesale. And I'm sure you have long-term investments, well, too. Well, yeah, but, this, but th this still really does apply yeah. because most wholesalers, the smart ones, are, are taking their profits after they make their expenses and investing in income-producing assets. Right, be. right. Yeah, well, you know, wholesaling is a business, and that should be distinguished from investing, which is just the long-term stuff you buy and hold that is on the sidelines, and, um, you know, it doesn't require a lot of attention and management. Wholesaling, you know, you've got to be active. And one of the things I love about your work is you, you teach people how to do that uh, from any location. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's super cool, super cool. So here's what happened. I'll just tell a little story for your listeners. Okay. So I was, um, I was buying this property. And uh, I was getting insurance for it. And my insurance broker uh, was a gal named Jennifer. And uh, Jennifer called me up and said, okay, we're going to insure this property for 135000 And that's when a light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, hmm, you're giving me $135,000 insurance on this property. And uh, I paid 159000 for the property. Mm -hmm. And I know that you as my insurance company do not insure the land you only insure the improvement or the house sitting on the land because the house could burn down, the apartment complex could burn down, but the land will always be there. So you, you don't get insurance on the land, okay? Okay. They just insure the improvement. And one of the keys here is for every investor must understand that they shouldn't look at a real estate deal as one thing. They should look at it as two components part, two component parts. One component is the land value, and the other is the improvement value, the structure sitting on the land. That, that's what I'm calling the improvement, okay? The, the house, the apartment complex, whatever it is, okay? Okay. So, 
So she said, okay, Jason, we're going to give you $135,000 worth of insurance for the house. And so I backed it out, just deductively reasoning, you know, then my land value, according to the insurance company, is $24,000. And being a California guy all my life, you know, I wasn't used to that. That was just a sort of a mind-blowing experience, Joe, because I, I thought, well, you know, in California, my land value's uh, $300,000 and the house sitting on the land is 200000 okay? Yeah. <laughs> that was what my typical deal looked like and I paid 500000 for both and I only got $1,800 a month for cash flow, which was terrible. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. you know, that was not investing, that was speculating, okay? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you can make some money speculating if you're lucky. Better to be lucky than good, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now let's now that we've divided the equation up into the improvement value and the land value, let's look at what influences the cost of these things and the value of these things. Well, improvement value is dictated by the cost to build it plus the builder's profit. Okay? So the reason this is important is that if that those two things can't be achieved, then builders stop building. And over the last several years, that's what we saw. We saw basically a climate where almost nothing was being built. And now that the market has come back, builders are out there in force building lots of stuff because they can get the cost to build plus a profit margin for themselves, so they're happy to build. Right. But back in 2009 or 2008, they wouldn't build anything because they couldn't achieve that, right? Right. So what influences improvement value? Okay, let's dissect that a little bit, and then, then I'll tell you what happened to me. I'll continue with my story. So what influences improvement value is, number one, environmentalism and building restrictions. So in an area where it's very difficult to build something, everything that is already built becomes more valuable. Okay, And so that would be an argument why California prices are so high. Okay, and that would have been great if you were in California investing in 1972 and you got to ride that wave for a couple of decades. Hey, more power to you. That was great. But it just doesn't make sense anymore. So, you know, we don't recommend it. So uh, there's an old riddle, you know, what do you call an environment? Uh, what do you call a developer? A developer is somebody who wants to build a house at the beach or in the woods. What do you call an environmentalist? somebody who already owns a house at the beach or in the woods, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah, gotcha. As, as long as they've got theirs, they're not going to be welcoming to anybody else. And, um, and so the other thing that influences the value of the improvement sitting on the land is the industrialization of developing countries. So you look at China and India, and look at the massive amount of consumption going on in those countries of the consumption of lumber, of petroleum products, of concrete, of steel, of copper wire, of, uh, you know, glass, of all of the ingredients that we as real estate investors own and control when we buy an improved property. So I don't like vacant land as an investment. I don't think it's a very good investment at all. It I like doesn't improved- produce doesn't yeah. improve it doesn't provide cash flow right doesn't produce income yeah exactly okay, okay. so so uh, I like improved property because it provides cash flow and income and when we invest in real estate Joe what we're really investing in if we're doing it in my opinion right 
by buying low land value markets is we're really commodities investors. You know, we own lots of copper wire, lots of petroleum products, lots of steel, lots of lumber, lots of concrete, um, and we own a lot of energy because it takes a lot of energy to build a house and we actually own the cost of labor that went into building that house. And so what we get to do is, you know, normally a commodities investor goes to the uh, Chicago Exchange and they buy commodities and uh, they, you know, buy pork bellies or coffee beans or soybeans or uh, lumber or steel or whatever the commodity is or gold, right? And what I call my philosophy of investing is I call it packaged commodities investing. Because these commodities are all assembled or packaged in the form of a house or an apartment building. Isn't that nice? Okay. And a lot of times, even now, still a little bit, we can buy these commodities at, at, at already assembled for less than what they're actually worth. And what I mean by that is that, you know, in any of the markets we recommend – it cost about $85 to $95 per square foot to build a house, okay? And our investors can still buy these houses for anywhere between $50 and $70 per square foot. Plus, the land is free. I mean... Well, explain that. What do you mean by that? Well, because... You know, if they buy a, um, you know, and I don't have one of these in front of me, but if, you know, if I was looking at jasonhartman.com in the properties section, I would just be looking and I would see something like this. I'd see a house that is, uh, you know, uh, say 1,300 square feet, okay, and it is $60 per square foot. So that's $78,000. And you could buy that whole deal for 78000 including land. Okay. And my point is, you can't build it for $60 a square foot today. Right. So you've already locked in your potential for gain. And I don't call that potential for gain, Joe, appreciation. I call it something else. I call it, get this one, it's a mouthful, regression to replacement cost. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tweetable. Yeah, that's a tweetable. Regre- <laughs> Thank you. A tweetable. I like that. Yeah, tweet that one, folks. But we're saying it again. <laughs> regression to replacement costs. Okay, explain that. Okay. Why is that important? Because the value doesn't really increase. It simply goes back to what it's actually worth. And it's worth $85 per square foot today to rebuild that house. If the house burnt down... And your insurance company covered replacement cost. They would not pay you $60 per square foot. They would pay you $85 per square foot because that's what it would cost to actually build it. So in that example, the 1,300 square foot house times $85 is $110,500. And what did I say it would cost? $78,000? So you have already got a difference of $32,500 locked in in that property dormant at the day you buy it in the form of regression to replacement cost. Appreciation is something entirely different in my opinion. Okay. Because appreciation is when the market goes up, the whole market goes up. I'm just talking about, you know, 
when a piece of wood is worth what a piece of wood actually cost. That's not appreciation in my eyes. Okay. Are you following me on that? Yeah, but why is that important? Well, okay, it's important because going back to this example, okay, at the same time I was buying this $159,000 property, I lived in California, and I was buying a house in Orange County, California, where I'm from. Which is really nice. Yeah, it's, it's really nice, but I, I left it three years ago, and that's kind of a different story. I moved to Arizona. I live in, uh, in Phoenix, okay? Right. Uh-huh. But, but in Orange County, I was, at the same time I was buying this house for 159000 I was also buying a house to live in for 815000 which is a starter home in Orange County, <laughs> okay? Okay, yeah. And, and what's interesting about this house is that, well— before I tell you that story, let me just do t- one more thing. Industrialization of developing countries. I want to tell you something about 2004, because that's the time frame I'm talking about. Ten years ago, 2004. That year, the government told us inflation was 3.3%. Okay? okay? Yet, that same year, the price of steel and iron went up by 34%. More than ten times the rate of inflation. I remember and, those days. I was... Um... I was in commercial construction during that time and lost some jobs, lost a lot of money because steel prices were going up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Lumber that same year was up 17%, and I'm sure you know this all too well, and gypsum or wallboard was up 20%. Okay? Mm-hmm. So when that stuff all increases in value, the price of your property increases in value. And this is the way you can basically eliminate risk, okay? So I'll tie this all in here. Just stick with me, folks, okay? So I was buying this house for 815000 And I remember my girlfriend at the time, her name was Monique, really, really adamantly tried to talk me out of this deal. And in a way, she was probably right, even though I made a bunch of money on it, okay? So let me tell you what happened. In my seminars, I show a copy of my tax bill from the tax collector. John Morlock was the Orange County treasurer tax collector at that time. Maybe he still is. I'm not sure. And he he said that of this $815,000 value on the tax bill, they divide up the land and the improvement value or the building sitting on the land. And so he said that the land was worth $659,000 and the improvement, the 1,800-square-foot house, was worth $156,000 for a total of eight fifteen. dollars I mean, you know, I'm rounding a little bit, but $815,000 basically, okay? And so it was interesting because comparing this to my house out of state that I was buying that was $115,000, and the improvement was 135 and the land was 24 the house in orange county was 815 the improvement was only 156 and the land was 659 mm. for a total of 815,000 I, I when jennifer the insurance broker called about that out of state property i thought wow when my improvement value is really high as a ratio to my land value I call this the LTI ratio, the land to improvement ratio. You know, a lot of people in real estate are familiar with the LTV ratio, the loan to value ratio. Okay. So my little acronym is LTI, land to improvement ratio. I think that dramatically 
dramatically, Joe, reduces an investor's risk. Okay? Here's why. So here's what happened. I move into the $815,000 house. A year goes by. I notice the market is going nuts. It's 2005. We all know what it was like back then. It was psychotic. It made no sense at all. Okay? Yeah. But I'd rather, like I say, I'd rather be lucky than good any day. So I was lucky. I, I noticed all the values in my area going up. I wanted to buy more out-of-state properties that actually made sense. And I wanted to use my nonsensical psychotic equity from the state of California, okay, in the nutty market that we had. And so I called up the bank and I said, hey, I want to refinance and get cash out of this property so I can buy more properties nationwide. And they sent over an appraiser. And the appraiser said, congratulations, Mr. Hartman, your house is now worth $1.3 million. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. It's only been a year. I paid $815,000 a year ago, and now it's worth one point three. This is unsustainable. It's a total bubble. Mm -hmm. Refinance it. I'm going to take the money out. Okay? (laughs) And that that was a very smart move. So the question, Joe, is... Well, you, you refinanced it and you took the money out, so you still owned it. I still owned it, okay? So why was, that got, a, why was that a smart move? Because I got to buy a whole bunch of other cash-flowing properties nationwide. Right. I got to diversify. I got to, you know, I got to strip the equity out of the property, which is a great move for many reasons. But here's the question I have for your listeners. Listeners... When, when the property goes from 815000 to $1.3 million, what went up in value? Remember those two components, improvement value and land value? Where was the gain made if you were to dissect it? It was made in land value. Right. It's the land that went up. Look, a year later, you could still rebuild that house for about the same price it cost to build it a year before. Maybe it'd be a little more expensive. But it wasn't $485,000 more expensive, right? Right. Okay. So then another year goes by, and the interest rates actually went down a little bit. So I called the same bank. Again, it was credit union, actually. I called the credit union again, and I said, hey, I want to refinance again and lower my rate. They send the same appraiser out a year later. His name is Eric. And by the way, it's funny because he later came to my seminar. And I illustrated this whole point with him sitting in the front row. And it was just funny for him to see this. And he says, I'm sorry to tell you that the value of your property has actually gone down in the last year. It's now only worth $1,215,000. So now I lost $85,000. I'm two years into this deal. Where did, I, where did the loss come from? Did it come from the improvement or the land? The land. Came, came from the land. So what does this tell us? It tells us that high land value markets are very risky markets. Because think about it. If, if at one point, at $1,215,000, if the land value goes to half, Let's just estimate the land value at $1 million and the structure, the improvement sitting on the land at $215,000. We'll say that went up too, okay, which it probably did a little bit. But the land value is about $1 million versus the land value of my property out of state. By the way, it was in Georgia, okay, 
uh, that land value is $24,000. If the land value gets cut in half in the California property, I'm going to lose a half a million dollars. If the land value in the Georgia property gets cut in half, I'm going to lose $12,000. Okay. Where is the risk? The risk is in high land value markets. And also, coincidentally, high land value markets never, Joe, and I'm sure you'll agree, they never cash flow. You no. can never get a good rent-to-value ratio on high land value markets. No, not, not unless you, um, you know, build maybe large commercial property or large multifamilies, but that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, and even then, you're still going to get much better cash flow in a low land value market. True. You know, so yeah. when you're analyzing a market, you're looking at this kind of stuff, right? You're looking Absolutely. at you're looking at the what did you call it? The LTI ratio, the land yeah, to the, improvement ratio. Yep. Yeah. How do you find that? How do you determine what that ratio is when you're looking at a market? That's an awesome question. And there are three ways to do it. Number one, your insurance company forms an opinion about that. Like I said, Jennifer called me and said, We're gonna insure the Georgia house for hundred and thirty five thousand, and I know I was paying one fifty nine for it. So 24000 by deduction is land value. Uh, an appraiser will also determine land value and improvement value and divide it up. And then, like I mentioned, the tax collector on the $815,000 house, the tax collector forms an opinion of land value and improvement value. So there's three ways to find out. Insurance, insurance uh, provider, tax collector, tax assessor, or appraiser. And that's how you know. But here's how you know without any of those, just when you're out there in the world. You just know that any market that has high land value is not a good market to invest. I mean, it's a, it's a good market to gamble and ride the appreciation wave if you can time the market. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been in this business longer than I care to admit, okay? You know, yeah. two, over two decades, okay? And in over 20 years... I have never met anybody who can reliably predict appreciation and depreciation. Okay. Okay? Those people I call gamblers. Okay. And I'm just too conservative nowadays, and, you know, I'm just older and more conservative, and I don't want to gamble. I, I want to be an investor. I want to get cash flow out of my properties, and like we talked about on the last episode of your show – the refi till you die methodology is the most tax efficient way to extract that wealth from your properties. And and Jason, let me ask you, that property you were talking about in California, you refinanced that at the height of the market. Yep. Still looking back, even though you used that equity to buy some other investment properties, the value probably dropped on that home. Do you still own it? No, I sold it. That's a good question. I sold it in 2011 for, get this, $915,000. So you still sold it for more than what you paid, bought it for originally. But a lot less than the peak, yeah. Okay, now, if you don't mind me asking, did you owe more than what it was worth when you sold it? Did you have to come up to yes. cash with money? N well, yes and no. That's a very good question. So um, my opinion is that the borrower is always in the driver's seat. And um, that's why it's good to be a borrower. And real estate is the most debt-friendly asset in America. It's also the most tax-friendly asset in America. And it's the most historically proven asset class in America. 
okay? So my lender, who had financed many of my properties, sent me a letter. Actually, they sent me like eight of them or nine of them because that's how many properties they had financed. You know, it was just a form letter they obviously sent to every borrower. In, I'm guesstimating 2007 or 2008, and I, I remember this letter. I think it was on blue paper, and so I kind of noticed it. It was kind of like, why is it on blue paper? You know, it was, they obviously wanted you to pay attention to it. And it says, we here at the credit union understand that times are hard. And, you know, I was current on all my payments. They didn't send this to me. They sent it to every borrower, okay? Yeah. We understand that times are tough. And uh, if you need help, uh, call us because we'd be happy to help you with a loan modification. <laughs> okay. And I thought, are you kidding me? Wait. You're you're soliciting all of your thousands of borrowers wow. offering to modify their loans and I really don't know why that happened. I think that there was just so much political pressure uh and you know keep in mind we were moving right into a presidential election. There was just so much political pressure and probably a whole bunch of incentives I I'm not even aware of in the banking system that would incentivize these lenders to do workouts, short sales, loan modifications, whatever. So get this. They did a workout for me. I didn't even ask for it at first. They volunteered. Wow. Okay? And, and what they did is they basically said, we will take and we will lop half of the balance off. You pay the other half in a no-interest note and I'm still paying on that, by the way. But get this. It's zero interest. And I think it was for either eight or ten years. Oh, wow. I mean, that was an awesome deal, if you ask me. So the... the um, And they offered it. I, it was unsolicited. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out why the banks were doing so much of that. Well, um, I'll tell you, it, it got even better later. Listen to this. And a lot of people listening already know this. Bank of America and the other big banks, but especially B of A, okay, they were so hated, like the most hated company in the country probably at, at the time at least. And um, uh, B of A was offering workouts to people. And I know a bunch of people that got took advantage of this where they would basically do what's called a no documentation. It was called a, they called, their name for it, I think, was a cooperative short sale. And they did this for probably millions of people. Millions of people, I bet, took advantage of this. Where they would pay you as the owner of the property to do a short sale. They would pay you anywhere from six to $32,000. And you didn't have to supply any tax returns or income documentation or anything I mean, it was like, oh, the, I, there is some efficiency that I do not understand, okay, okay, that goes on, or some political pressure, or some kinds of incentives in the banking system that I do not, I'm not privy to them, okay, and probably most people aren't, that these lenders just, during the, the uh, worst part of the financial crisis, they just wanted to clear things off the books, and the government must have just paid them to do it. You know, maybe it was part of the TARP deal. I don't exactly know how that worked. But it definitely was going on for millions and millions of people. Well, the, um, I, you know, obviously I think there was some 
there was obviously some financial reasons that the banks were doing that. One of the other reasons to to have that kind of a clearing is because there's a, a, a principle in economics called price discovery. And when you clear the market, it allows for price discovery. And so that that, you know, maybe one of the things they just had all that pressure to have price discovery. Okay. Okay. So what was your question though? Um, we were talking about, you know, looking at the, that evaluating risk in high land markets. Let's say you're looking at a, at an investment in a good area. Let's say Dallas, Texas or St. Louis, Missouri, uh, where I live, where the, that land to improvement ratio, is that what you called it again? Yep, LTI, land yeah. to improvement ratio, land, is very it, desirable in both of those markets. So it's the lower that ratio is, the better, right? Well, uh, the lower the land component is, yes, okay. the better. So um, talk a little bit about evaluating risk when you're looking at just one market. Well, it's, it's always true in the one market, okay? So you know, you're, if you're looking in Dallas, for example, you're going to be okay, because you're going to have a very good LTI ratio there. Um, if you're comparing markets and you're looking in Dallas and you're also looking where I used to live in Newport Beach, California, you know, it's going to be pretty obvious that you have much lower risk in Dallas in that example, okay? Okay. Um, you know, same is true of Houston, Atlanta, uh, Memphis, uh, you know, a ton of other places. So, um, you know, you know, what's interesting, too, I interviewed on my show uh, just Friday, although this isn't published yet, but uh, Consuelo Mack, who um, uh, is on PBS. And I know you like PBS, right? Yeah. So um, uh, or, you know, they're affiliated with NPR. I don't exactly understand how that all works. But uh, anyway, she has this show called Wealth Tracks on there. And, and, you know, she's a well-known financial commentator and so forth. And she said that this is a great quote, Joe. She said the Midwest is her favorite emerging market. She talks about it like it's a country. <laughs> like a third world, <laughs> yeah, like Mexico yeah. or something. No, no. She said that in a very positive way. Okay, okay. She was, she's very bullish on the Midwest. And, um, and second, her next best choice is the Southeast and the South. So, um, you know, those are great places to invest with good LTI or land to improvement ratios. Interesting. Very desirable. Okay, so but again, uh, what do you determine to be a risky investment in one market and a good investment in the same market? Oh, well, if it's the same market, yeah. then you know, you, you're going to have low land values market-wide. Then the next thing you start looking at is, is the RV ratio, what I call the rent-to-value ratio. And so you know, we ideally, at this time, like to get 1% as our target for rent-to-value ratio. Sometimes people get more, sometimes they get less, but 1% per month. So in other words, if it's a $100,000 property, it should rent for $1,000 per month. If it's a $200,000 property, but it's still in a good LTI ratio market. Like I give you an example. Um, one of our clients just called before he started investing with us. He, he bought nine properties through us, but he bought one before he knew about us. And it's in Atlanta. And Atlanta is a good market. I like Atlanta. Okay. Uh, but this was an expensive house that he shouldn't have bought. It was a $285,000 property. 
And so, you know, he's only getting like $1,650 a month for that property. And even though the land to uh, improvement ratio is good, the rent to value ratio is bad because it's just too expensive of a property. That doesn't make a good rental property being in that price range. In Atlanta, for example, or most anywhere at this time, if you go above $150,000, you start to really, you know, get into a point where it doesn't work in terms of rent to value ratio. Uh, and one thing I did want to caution for your listeners, Joe, is that, uh, even though the numbers would be really, really good in terms of both of these things in a place like Detroit, I wouldn't recommend Detroit, okay? Right. Because Detroit has a whole nother set of problems, okay? It has a declining population. And any place with a – when the population is declining, all bets are off. It doesn't matter how good anything looks. And the other problem is that um, – if you get into an area where um, uh, the you know the, these pri- properties are too cheap, it becomes hard to collect. There are just too many collection problems in really, really, really low-end properties. Although the numbers look good on paper, in practice they don't seem to really work out. Okay, so um, some, there's there's not a ratio really that you can use to look at that kind of. Those kind of metrics, I think, but... Well, I think, you know, like if, if someone was working in Detroit, you know, I would be wholesaling. You know, right, that, okay. that might be okay in that market. Um, you know, I, I just, I mean, I wouldn't buy and hold for long-term rental there. When you've got a, you've got a city that, you know, used to have about 1.6 million people and now it has about 800,000. And, um, you know, that, that's just, uh, I don't know, I think it's too problematic. But, you know, let's, let's say you still go back to Atlanta. And um, there's some neighborhoods in Atlanta that you wouldn't recommend to investors to buy. Oh, yeah, definitely. So how do you – what are some of the risks that you look for? Because you can find properties in, in rough areas that have 2 to 3% rent-to-value yeah. ratio. And right. That, at num- on, on a number scale, that looks, looks fantastic. Yeah. But you, you, know, you, you talk to people on the ground there, and they're like, man, that's a bad area. It's hard to get good tenants, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right, what right. else do you look for when evaluating risk on those kinds of deals? We like to be be- just slightly below the median price in an, any given area. We like good, high-quality neighborhoods that are, you know, a little bit below the middle kind of area, okay? That's that's our, our favorite. Um, you know, I, uh, I uh, some people say, and I think this is kind of funny, but it says, if you need a gun to collect your rent, don't buy there. If you need a knife, it might be okay. <laughs> oh my God. You know, in other words, it's sort of the scale of how bad the neighborhood is, right? Right. Um, you know, the bad neighborhood stuff just isn't my thing. You know, uh, we, we like kind of nice neighborhoods, you know. I mean, they're not super nice. Like most investors can afford to live in a much nicer neighborhood than, you know, what we recommend they buy in for investment. But, um, you know, you start to get into problems on the low, low end where you get those two to three percent RV ratios. And, you know, you got people that are using your house as a meth lab. And, you know, it's just it's just problematic. I mean, it's and some listen, everything I say a lot of people have broken these are just my philosophies okay people have made money in all of this stuff it, but it's a spe- understand it's a specialty okay so if you're going to invest in war zone neighborhoods then understand 
that's what you should do. You should be a specialist and you should have a gun and, you know, whatever else you need to do business there. You know, um, I, I met a guy at one of my seminars who he really invests in these neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, he says he just really gets to know his tenants and um, they like them. And uh, it's a specialty. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, I found to find a to find whether a neighborhood is good or not. Uh, just ask a property manager <laughs> or right. try to find a property manager. If you have a hard time finding somebody willing to manage a property, that's in that a good area, point. Yeah. That's probably not an area you want to invest in. Yeah. Very, very good point. Good point. You know, there's another one I can give uh, your listeners here. Um, one of our clients, his name is David, and he bought a bunch of properties uh, from us in Indianapolis. And, and we've always liked Indy pretty well. It's, a, it's been a pretty perennial good market, uh, Indianapolis. And um, uh, he uh, uses something he calls the free lunch metric. And I actually did a podcast on this. I thought it was such a funny idea and a cool idea that what he does is he goes on the web and he looks at how many students in the schools are getting free lunches. And he will use that as a a metric to determine uh, how uh, low on the socioeconomic ladder a neighborhood is by how many free lunches there are. Interesting. So I just thought that was kind of funny. I actually, he, uh, he popped into my door in the office one day and, and told me about this. And I thought, you know what? I'm sticking a microphone in front of you. You got to tell everybody about this. So we did, we did a show on it. We're uh, not saying that free lunches are bad. Yeah. <laughs> Who says there's no free lunch, right? right. But, um, okay, now let's talk about, Jason. Once you've got property, how do you manage the risk when you own property? What are some of the ways that you teach people to do that? Well, you know, that's a whole nother subject uh, for another episode. But gen- generally, you know, you just have to be a good manager. Be a good manager of your managers. The vast majority of our clients use property managers. They don't do their own management, although we have a few that do. And uh, we also have uh, taught people how to self-manage properties from a distance. And I have done that successfully myself. But, um, y- you know, you've got to stay on top of things uh, you should uh, assume that each property will take about one hour per month of your time, and you've got to get organized and um, you know use uh, software. We we currently use Property Tracker, which has been great, um, and it will help you uh, track your properties and and uh, do that part of it. But just uh, pay attention to things, respond quickly. And um, don't give your managers, if you have a property manager, don't give them too long a leash, okay? And what I mean by that is uh, they will all put um, things into their property management agreements that say, you know, they have the right to um, have discretionary budget for repairs of a couple hundred dollars per month. In today's world where everybody's connected and, you know, can respond really quickly to emails and and so forth... uh, I don't think you need to do that anymore. I think you give them $100 per month, maybe $200 per month. And the key is it's per month per property, not per incident. Right. Okay? Per month is all discretionary. And, and everything else beyond that, they've got to get your approval. And when they email you to get your approval, because most of this happens by email, do not be a pushover. Okay, if if it if it's something that is, uh, you know, more than two or three hundred dollars, 
I'd request another quote. And you want to get the quote on the actual vendor's quote sheet, not the property manager's quote sheet, okay? Whoever is actually doing the work, in other words, swinging the hammer or turning the wrench on that plumbing, okay, that's who you need the quote from, okay, not the manager. It needs to be from that plumber or that contractor or whatever, okay? And if it's over, you know, if it's over five, $600, you know, or, or higher than that, three quotes. And you will be amazed at how much latitude there is in these prices, okay? And don't be afraid to negotiate, okay? So Yeah, that's um, a good point. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of people are afraid to manage their properties themselves, and they don't need to be, maybe, um, I have some really it's, good it's, friends. It's really pretty easy. I it gotta, is. It's not very hard. It is. You know, I've got some good friends in the uh, Baltimore, Maryland area who own a bunch of rental property. Yep. And for a long, long time, several years, they were always fighting their property managers over their properties. And man- yeah. they got tired of managing the managers. It almost became just as much work. So they just said, you know what? Forget it. We're going to do it ourselves. And they hired a part-time assistant. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they hired a part-time assistant, and they gave her some books on um, on managing property. There's a lot of really good books on managing rental property, yep. a lot of good resources out there. And they gave her the systems that they already use and all that. And they found out that um, it wasn't hard at all. It was easy for this part-time assistant to manage all the properties for them. And they had... They had less headache and less hassle because it was done in-house, and they saved a lot of money by doing it. Now, I'm not saying I'm not knocking property managers, but if you've got enough properties, um, you should think about maybe hiring your own part-time assistant or maybe maybe even a virtual assistant. I don't know. I'd prefer yeah. to have somebody local for that. But right. um, you could, you'd be surprised how easy it is to manage those properties, and you still don't have to st- – hear about all the details, but get someone else on your team to take care of that for you. You you know what else? Uh, A lot of times your tenant can manage those repair items and things like that. It's amazing how helpful some of your tenants are. I mean, it really is. Not all of them, but some are just wonderfully helpful, you know? Um, And a lot of them will do the the work themselves, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I I had this one, uh, a petroleum engineer in Houston, and I mean, he was like, great. He was fixing up my property, and, you know, he said, hey, this is broken, but I'm going to take care of it for you. You know, and one of the things I've noticed, Joe, um, is that I think when the tenant has to come to the owner directly for something, they tend to not bother you that much. If it's just some like big institution, like a property management company, there's no person behind it and they don't feel like any need to maintain the relationship or, uh, you know, they don't mind being a pest if it's some big company. Right. Um, but, but if they got to come to you, a human being and say, Hey, you know, can you fix this or something? You know, a lot of times they'll just take care of stuff. They really do. It's amazing. And the other thing you're going to be surprised with is, um, how helpful local realtors can be. Tap into that network. You know, they're looking for business, obviously, uh, but uh, they can be super helpful and they'll do a lot of stuff for free. You know, they'll refer you to repair people or, uh, you know, do walkthroughs for you, all kinds of stuff. It's amazing. You know, just tap into all that stuff. That's okay. Good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Good um, stuff. Do you want, is there anything else you want to mention about risk and how you manage it and things you look at? Oh, you know, we could talk forever, you and I, <laughs> but I think we covered the topic pretty good. So, uh, well, a lot to think about and um, definitely some deep 
things. I think you've gotten more technical and analytical than any other guest we've had, which is, yeah. which is right up my alley. I love those kinds of things that talk about. And um, I think that it's important to know your numbers, obviously, right? If you yeah. don't know your numbers, uh, you could be sinking and not even know it. Most definitely, most definitely. Well, Joe, it's been great to talk to you again. And, uh, and you know, that's a great point you made because a lot of people in the game of real estate, they're winning and they don't even know it because they don't know how to keep score. Mm. And uh, so that's, that's critically important. You know, we could talk about that on another show about reading performance and all of that kind of stuff someday. But, uh, but yeah, it's good. Jason, you do several live events a year that uh, mm-hmm. you take people to out to look at properties, but you're not just sticking them on a bus and going to look at properties. You actually sit down with them and educate them and train them. I've been wanting to go to one of your events for years, <laughs> believe mm-hmm. it or not. Yeah. I've never, never have done it. Um, but when is your next one? And, and have you got the more, more of them after that planned out? Yeah, well, it depends when you're going to publish this, okay? So okay. Uh, our Birmingham property tour is in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, that's a Creating Wealth seminar on Saturday, and then it's the property tour on Sunday. We'd love to have you and, and your listeners, and uh, that's the weekend before Thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, you can register for that at jasonhartman.com uh, and click on events. And then every January is our big event, our Meet the Masters event in Irvine, California, that's Southern California, and um, that's a two-day event, really two and a half days, because you know people are there Friday night and then all day Saturday and Sunday, where we have different speakers from all over the country fly in uh, to present uh, asset protection, property management, a whole bunch of other stuff. And the thing I like to say, it is not a pitch fest. Yeah. <laughs> so Good. if you've been to those kind of events, mine aren't like that. Okay. <laughs> so. Oh yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll enjoy it. You don't need to bring your wallet, in other words. <laughs> Leave your money at home, okay? <laughs> well, good. Very good. good and Jason, there. do you have um, – is there a good place where people can go to to maybe get some – you know, you, you've put a lot of thought into this. Do you have like a, training materials, education materials that people can get, um, courses or books? Sort of our core product is the Creating Wealth Home Study course, which is available at jasonhartman.com in the store. Um, but, you know, also we do that event live and, and come live if you can. But if not, uh, get the training course. It's digital download. It's real easy and it's not expensive at all. And, um, uh, you know, that, that's available too. And then just listen to the podcast, The Creating Wealth Show. Very good, Jason. Well, thank okay. you very much. Appreciate it. Hey, everybody, go to Real Estate Investing Mastery to get the show notes. And if you go to the previous episode we did with Jason, we gave you a link in there to download the Ten Commandments of Real Estate Investors. And we also talked about in that episode um, how to refi till you die, how the numbers work. And you can get that on the previous show notes. And maybe I'll try to to put it again in these show notes. But um, Jason, you've been a great guest. I sure appreciate you being on the show and uh, everybody should really check out his podcast. It's very good. He goes into a lot of detail and depth on the economy, um, the global big picture things, and how it affects us today in our, in our own lives. So thank you, Jason, very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Joe, and happy investing to you and your listeners. All right, everybody. See you guys later.